If you're a leader or an aspiring leader in the business of lifelong learning, you're in the right place. I'm Salisa Steele. And I'm Jeff Cobb. And this is the Leading Learning Podcast. There and welcome to episode 177 of the Leading Learning Podcast, where we talk with Jeff DeCanya, the executive advisor for Foresight First LLC. And Jeff's been on the Leading Learning Podcast before, back on episode 68, where he, Salisa, and I all talked about the need for foresight among leaders, including, of course, leaders of learning. Now, this time around, it was just you talking with Jeff, Salisa. So, could you tell us what you focused on? Yes, this time around, we focused the discussion on artificial intelligence, which is, of course, an area where foresight is needed. And Jeff's gotten very involved of late in looking at artificial intelligence and applying that foresight lens of his to AI. And he has a lot to say, so much good stuff, in fact, that we're going to try out a first for the Leading Learning Podcast and split the interview into two parts. In part one, which we're about to hear, Jeff and I get into what an AI-first world is, what it looks like, some common misconceptions about AI, and the interesting and often vexing ethical issues surrounding AI and what we might do to deal with those ethical issues. Well, Jeff is an incredibly smart person. He always has great insights, great foresight. And uh, of course, I'm thrilled that we're actually doing our first uh, double album here on Leading Learning. I don't know if double albums even exist anymore. That's probably from, I'm revealing my age too much in saying that. But in any case, uh, looking forward to this episode and then that next episode where we're going to continue the conversation with Jeff DeCanya about artificial intelligence. But for now, let's roll part one of our double album. Hello and welcome. I'm Salisa Steele. This is the Leading Learning Podcast. And today I'm joined by Jeff DeCanya, the Executive Advisor for Foresight First LLC. Jeff's a speaker. He's a future focused contrarian thinker. He's an author, including of the ebook Foresight is the Future of Governing. And he's an advisor for associations and nonprofits. Jeff, welcome back to the Leading Learning Podcast. Thank you very much, Salisa. It's a pleasure to be with you and looking forward to our conversation. Well, me too. And I said welcome back because this is your second time as a Leading Learning Podcast guest. You were on back in episode 68, and we'll make sure to link to that uh, episode in the show notes for this conversation. But for today, and to get us started off, I want to give you the chance to say a little bit more about yourself and, and your background. What else would you like for listeners to know? Well, I think that, you know, uh, as you point out, I work a lot with associations and nonprofit organizations. That's really where I've spent my entire career, both on the staff side and, and for the last 17 years as a consultant, advisor, uh, you know, facilitator of learning experiences and, and other things of that nature. And I think, you know, for the purposes of our conversation today, um, for the last few years, as part of my work, I've really been trying to uh, build my understanding of artificial intelligence. You know, I'm not a technologist. I'm someone who cares deeply about uh, where the future is taking us, where we are taking ourselves into the future. And artificial intelligence is clearly one of the main threads of, of the transformation of our society that we'll, that we'll talk about. And so I've been trying to immerse myself in, in learning as much as I can about artificial intelligence. And one of the things that I'm actually doing now in my capacity 
as a voluntary contributor to you know the professional association that you and I have both been connected to, which is the American Society of Association Executives. Um, I'm serving on one of their foundation's committees, the research committee, and chairing a task force on AI and automation, which is really looking at research that we might do. So it's taking my uh, personal sort of level of commitment to this to another level because I'm really trying to understand not only for my own benefit and for the benefit of my clients, um, you know, how artificial intelligence uh, is affecting our society and will affect each one of us, but also how artificial intelligence uh, will have broader implications um, for the community of, organ- of organizations that I work with and and even broader than that. So uh, it's definitely an exciting time to for me uh, to be exploring these issues because we're very much at, a, I think, a, a key moment um, in the trajectory of, of artificial intelligence. And there's a lot to talk about, and I'm looking forward to exploring a lot of those issues with you today. Great. And, you know, I, I know that obviously foresight is this uh, big focus of yours and, and artificial intelligence is, of course, an area where some foresight is is needed. And so maybe to start off, could you talk about, you know, what does an AI first world look like and, and how close are we to living in an AI first world? Sure. So I just think by way of background, you know, in response to that, um, the, the first place that I encountered, and it's possible that this is, you know, it kind of came up before, but the first place that I encountered the use of that term in kind of a very public fashion is when Sundar Pichai, who was the CEO of Google three years ago, um, announced that, that the company was shifting from being mobile first to being AI first. And other companies have followed Microsoft and, and others have sort of followed that lead. And basically what that means, you know, is it's, it's a strategic choice to put AI first um, as a decision to you know prioritize it essentially over other technologies. So for years we've talked about mobile first, and that was a choice that companies were making to direct users to a mobile experience um, that um, that was you know even if that meant sacrificing what was going on on a more traditional website, that was the decision that was being made to make mobile first. And that's very similar to what's happening with AI. That the choice to prioritize artificial intelligence, maybe other over other technologies, and and that of course creates some some questions that will have to be have to be answered, including you know are we in effect putting artificial intelligence out there that is uh, of lesser quality as we try to figure out how to build the quality of that AI and and so on. But it, it's it's a decision that companies are making, and I think what's pretty clear to me is that, broadly speaking, we are moving toward being in an AI-first world, but we're not quite there yet. And I think the real question we should be asking ourselves, all of us, is what kind of AI-first world are we, be, are we creating or is being created on our behalf by some of these large tech companies and, and by other players uh, in the system? And, you know, it, it's really a question of, you know, is, is the AI-first world that's being created for us one in which corporations are the sole beneficiaries um, of increased automation and, and really deriving that benefit for the company and its shareholders? Or are we building an AI-first world that eliminates drudgery from our lives, augments human performance, and basically improves the overall well-being of our society? And I would just point your listeners to a couple of, of articles, and I know we'll link to these in the show notes. You know, But in late January, there was an article in the New York Times by a reporter who was covering the World Economic Forum in Davos, And what he was describing in this article is is sort of a dichotomy between the public conversations at Davos and the private conversations. In public, 
the conversations that he was hearing in sessions and panels and so on was about, you know, how should AI be implemented in a responsible fashion to protect workers who will lose their jobs due to automation. But in private, what he was hearing were very robust conversations, often with consultants who are trying to sell services in this area. Uh, it's, it's conversations really about automating work as quickly as possible to reduce costs, to increase short-term profitability, pressure from shareholders and boards who represent shareholders to do that, and to remain competitive somewhat without regard to the impact of those efforts on workers. Uh, and that's a real concern because if, if, you know, if large companies are making a decision to automate their workforces without really evaluating the implications of that for workers around the world, um, then that's creating and we're moving toward an AI first world in which capital essentially owners benefit from artificial intelligence and, and labor, which is workers, um, bear the consequences of, of artificial intelligence. And the other thing I would say, you know, in respect with respect to this uh, question is that, uh, the Pew research center, which I know you're familiar with released a report in late 2018. Um, the report is called artificial intelligence and the future of humans. And this report is based on input from nearly a thousand experts in technology, business, and related fields. And really what they were trying to get at fundamentally, sort of a top-line you know, outcome of this report, was whether AI will leave people better off over the next decade. And, and I'll just quote briefly from something in the summary of the report, which is, you know, overall, this is what the report said, overall, and despite the downsides they fear, 63% of the respondents in this canvassing, meaning this report that I've just referenced, said they are hopeful that most individuals will be mostly better off in 2030, and 37% said people will not be better off. And I think, you know, you can listen to that quote and hear some of the, you know, contingency in it. You know, we're hopeful that most individuals will be mostly better off <laughs> in 2030. There, there is a fair bit of, you know, well, I, we're, we're kind of hoping it'll go that way. Um, so it's an impressive spread. 63% say, yes, there's reason to be hopeful. 37% saying people will not be better off. But it's clearly, in my view at least, not a slam dunk. So we can choose to be hopeful about you know, what an AI-first world will look like, as most of these experts in the Pew Report are, uh, that AI is going to benefit you know, humanity. At the same time, I think we all have to exercise care and not get too caught up in, on the one hand, excessive optimism that is encouraged by some of the utopian views of AI, that it will solve, you know, the world's most intractable problems like climate change and poverty, um, or on the other hand, the unreasoned fear that comes with some of the dystopian futures uh, around AI that, you know, massive job losses uh, due to automation and all of us will be collecting universal basic income. I, I think that, you know, it's better for us to sort of look at those polls and recognize that the ultimate outcome is likely to between likely to be somewhere between them. So, I don't think you know. There's for me just sort of as a final point. I don't think there's any question that as we move toward an AI first world, that right now, on balance, you know, we're, we're already seeing a major impact of AI in our society. On balance, that impact is beneficial, um, but there's clearly issues that have to be addressed, and we'll talk about some of those. I expect that that will continue at least for now. Um, at the same time, I do have a number of uh, very significant concerns about a number about various AI automation issues, and so I take the 37% of you know experts in that Pew Research report. Um, I take that very seriously because I'm I sort of feel 
the same way. I, I'm probably about 60% good with AI and maybe about 40%, you know, concerned about AI. So, you know, I think we're moving in a direction that is somewhat independent of our individual choices, but I still think we have to retain our own individual um, decision-making and impact as much as we can to ensure that we move this in, in a direction that is beneficial for society rather than one that is uh, where the benefits accrue mostly to those who are already at the top. Well, I have read that Pew uh, report, and I think you know, you cut right to the chase. The the part that I think is the key takeaway that that sort of breakdown of of how hopeful or not people are, and and you I love your characterization because it is definitely a heavily couched sort of even the yes, optimists are uh, are very sort of tempered there. So. Whatever the future brings, you'll always need good partners for your learning business. And so we suggest you check out our sponsor for this quarter. Blue Sky eLearn is the creator of the PATH Learning Management System, an award-winning cloud-based learning solution that allows organizations to easily deliver, track, and monetize valuable education and event content online. Blue Sky also provides webinar and webcast services, helping you maximize your content and create deeper engagement with your audience across the world. To find out more about Blue Sky eLearn and everything they offer, visit leadinglearning.com slash blue sky. And now, back to Salisa and Jeff as they turn to some common misconceptions about artificial intelligence. You know, when I introduced you... I- I mentioned that you're a contrarian because I know that you like to be contrarian. You like to be (laughs) unorthodox. And so I'm hoping you'll apply that lens to artificial intelligence for us. You know, what do mainstream and orthodox views of AI get wrong or miss? So, so just before I answer that question, I just want to, I just want to sort of tackle the first part of it, the contrarian and orthodox, you know, thinking <laughs> okay. phase. You want to defend yourself. <laughs> no, no, no. I actually, I no longer feel any need to defend myself. For years I did, I guess. I was a little bit self-conscious uh, about that. And then a few years ago, I kind of leaned into it. Um, and, and, and I, and I want to explain, I just, you know, for the benefit of your listeners, I just want to sort of explain why I um, adopt, you know, that way of looking at things. So let me just kind of pick up where I left off. So, you know, artificial intelligence is just one of many um, forces and, you know, one of many um, themes, if you will, that is driving the underlying and, and quite comprehensive transformation of our society, something I've been talking about for a long time. That transformation is in progress. It's been in progress for a while. It's not just technology. It's cultural, economic, political, social, scientific, environmental, uh, there's a wide variety of forces that are all reshaping our society in very profound ways, and that has been going on for a while. We're closer to the beginning of it than we are to the end, and it will continue for the foreseeable future. And uh, that transformation raises many complicated questions for all of us. Um, and clearly, being complicated questions, they defy easy answers. So in that kind of context that we find ourselves in in 2019 – it's absolutely essential, in my view, that we, all of us, um, seek to question the orthodox beliefs that have existed within our organizations for a very long time. And just to be clear what I'm saying, you know, orthodox beliefs are deep-seated assumptions that we make about how the world works. And those assumptions are deeply embedded in our organizations, they're deeply embedded in us because they've been inculcated in us through a variety of life experiences, in some cases, over many decades. And those orthodox beliefs interfere with our ability to learn, which more than anything else right now is, is crucial. Our, our ability to learn individually, collectively, organizationally, societally, is really what will determine what happens 
over the course of the next decade and beyond how this how this goes for us uh, along a number of fronts. And so the orthodoxy piece is absolutely essential for all of us. Now, not everyone is necessarily going to be comfortable with a contrarian piece. I, I, I didn't, as I just sort of alluded to, I wasn't always <laughs> comfortable with it either because it, I sort of viewed it as an indictment um, uh, for a while. But then I realized, you know, that there is real value in adopting the contrarian view because it's a way of ensuring that alternative ways of thinking are being represented in all conversations. These are, as I said, these are complicated questions that defy easy responses. And if we limit our thinking, limit our individual and collective thinking to just what we've, just what we've always thought um, and not examine the orthodoxy and not question um, the thinking, then the, the tables where decisions get made will be missing out on important perspectives. And so that contrarian view is really, is really essential to um, having you know conversations that are going to lead to better decisions, uh, so it's really a both and for me, both the the orthodox piece and the um, and the contrarian piece. So to your question about about AI, I don't know if the things that I'm going to talk about here necessarily reflect quote unquote mainstream orthodox views of AI, but I do think that they they do reflect some of the common misconceptions. Um, that exist out there around artificial intelligence. So I'm just, I'm just going to mention three that I think are particularly important. And again, that, that for some of your listeners, these may not be earth-shattering, but I think it's important for us to start from sort of a common frame of reference. So the first thing is, you know, artificial intelligence is not new. Um, there's there's a long-standing human fascination with automatons and robots that goes back to Homer in ancient Greece. Um, the term robot, just to sort of fast forward a few thousand years, the robot, the term robot was coined by a Czech playwright in 1920. Um, and we've had contemporary science fiction, you know, it's given us, um, how, you know, in, in, in 2001, a space odyssey, C3PO, Skynet, Westworld, um, just to name a few examples. So this, this sort of fascination with super intelligence automatons, you know, robots and so on is, has, has been a feature of human history for a long time. As a scientific discipline, artificial intelligence has existed since the 1950s, the mid-1950s, and it has had a very circuitous pathway to where it has come today. It has had periods of where it's been in favor, periods where it has been very much out of favor, um, lots of ups and downs over the course of the last 60-plus years or so. Uh, within the last decade, though, we've seen sort of a reemergence and a resurgence of interest in artificial intelligence. New momentum has been built because we've been able to develop more advanced algorithms. We have more computing power. We have more data. And so that has really led to um, to, to new interest in the power of artificial intelligence. The thing to keep in mind is that a lot of the core um, work upon which today's work is based has been around for 30 plus, thir- you know, more than 30 years. Um, a lot of the thinking around deep learning and so on and so forth, for example, has existed since the 80s. And so we're making strides, making progress, but this is not a new thing. It's been It's been something that's been percolating for a number of years, and we now have the conditions in which it's been able to thrive again. I would just parenthetically add before I continue that you know there are some people who are deeply involved in the artificial intelligence field who discuss the possibility that we might see another what they call AI winter. There's been a, a couple of AI winters over us. So right now we're in an AI spring um, because there's so much interest. I might even go so far as to say we're in an AI summer because <laughs> there's so much it's so hot right now with AI. Um, but it's possible 
you know, what happens is, you know, when the, when the hype outstrips the reality, that's when you get into a trough of disillusionment, as some people call it, and you end up in an AI winter. And there are some people who are saying, you know what, we might end up there again. I keep watching that. I, I maintain, you know, a vigilance on that. Um, however, I, I personally believe that because there's so much investment in artificial intelligence and there's so much uh, desire for countries um, you know, at a national level and, and around the world to be thinking about artificial intelligence. We're already seeing some of the benefits of artificial intelligence that it's less likely that we'll see another AI winter um, anytime soon. But it, it's it's there. And so I just want to sort of put that out there as, as something for people to kind of follow in the back of your minds and say, if you ever hear anyone talking about AI winter, then you'll know, you know, what that what that's referring to. So that's one thing. AI is not new. Secondly, AI is not magic. Mm-hmm. Uh you know, at a foundational level, AI, and particularly when we talk about machine learning, is math, right? Um, most of AI is basically powerful algorithms being trained on massive amounts of data to make predictions. And um, this is, it's important to understand this because most of us are quite accustomed to um, software applications that perform functions that they are programmed to perform. So, you know, everyone uses some kind of word processing program, Word or Google Docs or something like that. Those are applications that have been programmed to do those things, right? Someone sat and coded it to do just those things. Uh, Most AI algorithms and the applications that they are used in, what they do is they are coded to learn, basically. So they are learning to perform um, activities based on, for the most part, again, in machine learning primarily, based on training data that they are provided. There are some deep learning applications that will learn based only on rules that have been given to them rather than massive amounts of data. So there's been a lot of discussion within the last couple of years about uh, AlphaGo and AlphaGo Zero and um, various AI applications or algorithms created by a group called DeepMind, which is based in London as part of Google. And you know, basically they're training AI to play games, and there's been a lot of media um, reporting about how successful they've been in beating not only other machines, but also beating human players uh, in those games. And some of the more recent um, applications didn't involve any data at all. It simply gave them the rules of the game and then had them play games, had the AI play games against itself and learn how to play and and, and became so successful that it, it beat not only the previous iteration of the AI that had learned on data, but it also beat um, human players. So it's it's basically you know a, a form of math and and computing you know computing power that is able to do this. But the mainstream media <laughs> tends to report on AI in a way that makes it sound like magic, mm. um, makes it sound magical in its abilities and so on. So it may sound magical, but it's not magic. And because it's not magic, that's a big part of the reason why we have to be vigilant about what it is we are creating because we're creating this. It's not something we're conjuring up out of, out of, out of thin air. Um, and that, and that's key to understand that that's, not, these are not magical things. These are, these are things that we're developing using, um, you know, very hardcore techniques um, that exist and using, using technologies that we're building. The, the final point that I would make is that, um, you know, AGI or artificial general intelligence is not at hand. So one of the things you hear all the time is, you know, we're on the verge, I mentioned Skynet or on the verge of Skynet, you know, they're taking over. Um, that's not the case at this time. 
the major AI developments that we're talking about today, everything that I'm mentioning, are all forms of what we call narrow AI. Sometimes people call it weak AI, which means they're basically developed with specific applications in mind. So, you know, AlphaGo, AlphaGo Zero. If you change the game from Go, which is the you know the Asian um, you know strategic, very strategic game played a lot in Asia, um, if you change it to Checkers, it wouldn't know what to do. Right. So if the game was different, it would not be able to to apply itself in any kind of meaningful way. So there is ongoing um, research into developing artificial general intelligence or AGI, sometimes also referred to as strong AI. It's where you know the artificial intelligence is sentient and can kind of make decisions independent of uh, of human beings. That's what people are very fearful of that AGI would get out of our control. Um, we're not there yet, right? And and I think the the view that I hear most commonly expressed is that it will take us a quite a much much longer period of time to get to AGI at a minimum to see any real breakthroughs another decade or so. Although you know I keep my eyes open to see what's what's happening on that. There are some experts who do not believe we'll ever get to artificial general intelligence that it's simply not possible because intelligence isn't just one thing. And um, there's a variety of you know rationales for why it won't get there. I think the the main thing that I would just offer up, just as a concluding thought, is that on all of these points, and particularly on this issue of AGI, uh, artificial general intelligence, it's important for us to be vigilant, to be mindful of the fact that there's a lot going on, and what's getting reported in the media is often presenting a, a singular view of what that is. And sometimes other things that could be even more significant on the horizon maybe aren't getting the same level of coverage because they don't have that sort of same sexy magical quality about them, but they're actually very important developments that could have um, you know more significant impact later on. So those are some things that I think are pretty common misconceptions about artificial intelligence that I think everyone, everyone, all of us really should know, but particularly people who are working in in the learning space because these these things are are going to you know artificial intelligence having a direct impact on what it means to learn as we'll talk about and so it's important to have that foundational understanding of what AI is and what it isn't. Yeah, absolutely. So you know AGI isn't new. It's not magic, and it's not yet uh, general. It's this this more narrow artificial intelligence. So that, that's great to have those kind of common misconceptions laid out in front of us so that we can make sure we're hopefully not falling in those falling in the trap of thinking that way. While not magic, data analytics can be powerful mojo for a learning business. And so we encourage you to check out our sponsor for this quarter. Authentic Learning Labs is an education company seeking to bring complementary tech and services to empower publishers and L&D organizations to help elevate their programs. The company leverages technology like AI, data analytics, and advanced embeddable API-based services to complement existing initiatives, offering capabilities that are typically out of reach for resource-stretched groups or growing programs needing to scale. Find out more at leadinglearning.com slash authentic. And now, back to Salisa and Jeff as they turn to the ethics of artificial intelligence. Now, I know that one of the other things that you're thinking a lot about is the ethics of artificial intelligence. And, you know, when you were talking about that, that Davos and the article there around sort of the focus on corporations or kind of the, the individual workers um, uh, in society and kind of who's going to benefit from artificial intelligence, I think you began to touch on it. But um, talk a little bit more about kind of what are the ethical issues of AI and what questions do we need to be asking to deal with those ethical issues? 
So, you know, there, 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 I think there are many ethical considerations in AI, and some of them are beyond the scope of, of our conversation today. So, um, you know, in the Pew Report, they, um, they mention, you know, they refer to a sort of group of what I would regard as ethical considerations as chaos, right? Um, so things like autonomous weapons, right? The introduction of AI into weapons, um, which, you know, for military purposes, which would, is a very scary idea. So they're essentially the, the literal weaponization of AI. Um, Cybercrime is certainly an area of, of concern. Um, and how is AI being used? And then that even go, transcends ethics and goes on to, you know, criminality and legality. Mm-hmm. Um, the weaponization of information, which is already happening, and we'll um, make reference probably a little bit to that later. Um, I'm also concerned about the, um, the battle of, um, for supremacy in AI between China and the U.S. and what that means in terms of the ethical standards um, that might be applied to artificial intelligence over the years. China has made a very strong um, national commitment to the pursuit of AI. They are not as particular in China uh, about things like privacy um, and, um, and the concerns of, of individuals. Um, and if, if their efforts to establish supremacy in artificial intelligence are successful and they're, they're doing, in my opinion, a lot more, uh, to advance their national interests in this area than we are as a country in the U S. Um, but that's where, where the battle really is. It's really the China, really China and the U S and then everybody else. Um, then, um, you know, how that will unfold over the next 120 months raises a lot of, a lot of concerns for me in terms of what will be the ethical standard and how will we respond if, if we essentially lose our advantage, um, that I think we still generally have, but it's, it's, it's evaporating. I also think there's another ethical consideration around what I just alluded to, which is sort of the have and have not aspect of things. If already wealthy and growing countries um, or at least, you know, powerful governments are the ones that are uh, driving in some way what's happening with AI. Uh, it leaves a whole uh, significant portion of the world's population being disadvantaged um, because they are not the beneficiaries in any way of AI. They are sim- simply um, somewhat at the mercy of, of other countries and how they choose to apply AI and the companies that operate in those countries. These are all very important considerations that have ethical implications and political and other implications, but they're beyond the scope of our discussion today. For today, I think there are three areas where I'm tending to focus my attention, where I think everyone who works in all organizations, um, whether they're for-profit, non-profit, university, and so on, really should be thinking with respect to AI. The first is is what I, you know, what I and others refer to as responsible AI. Um, are we developing AI in a responsible manner? Um, which means, you know, are we clear about why AI, why a particular algorithm application is being created in the first place and its beneficial effects for people? Are we starting out from a premise that there's a reason why we're creating this and we know, we, we understand, or we're trying to understand, or we're trying to be very clear about how this will benefit people? Um, the need for greater diversity among those who are working on the development of algorithms, there is a real diversity issue crisis in some in some people's minds within the um, within the AI um, community in terms of those the scientists who are working on and those who are developing algorithms. Um, I think I read somewhere that um, a, a, just a cursory view of profiles on LinkedIn shows that, you know, I forget what the exact number is, but it's a very high number of, of profiles in of people who are mentioning they're working in AI are white men, 
Um, so <clears throat> that's a problem because if the primary developers of artificial intelligence are essentially of one background, you know, white, just basically white men, then you will not get the benefit of being able to see other problems that could emerge um, when your life experience is different from that of a white man. Um, the, the issues around recognizing and removing um, human biases from the data sets that are being used to train AI algorithms, and that includes biases towards racism, sexism, homophobia, uh, socioeconomic prejudice, and other forms of discrimination um, that are present in data sets because those data sets have been generated over many years, and in some cases they exclude. There's not as many African-American people in them or people of color generally in them or not as many women, and there have been some very high-profile situations where data sets have been used to train artificial intelligence, and those those applications had great difficulty um, distinguishing between uh, an African-American face and the face of a gorilla. Um, and, and other situations like that, these, these biases and prejudices have been essentially integrated into the, uh, AI applications because of data sets that, that have, um, that have those biases present, biases present in them. So for me, all those things, um, are sort of a piece of the responsible development, um, and creation of artificial intelligence, uh, in ways that will serve, uh, humanity rather than, than simply advancing what we've always done um, and, and kind of bringing human flaws into it from the very beginning. Then I would go to what I've described as ethical AI. Are we implementing AI in an ethical manner? Um, so we develop in a responsible way. Are we implementing it in an ethical way, which means actually translating our beneficial purposes that we got clear on previously um, the, the, the beneficial purposes of creating it into the implementation, not sort of shifting, because there is often that that problem that comes with we develop it for this thing and then we use it in this way. Um, so let's be sure that we're translating the intention, the original purpose and its benefits and making sure that occurs in the implementation, protecting data privacy, um, <clears throat> preserving human agency by augmenting human performance. So essentially keeping people in a position where they're making choices um, rather than being dependent um, on, you know, the algorithms. We're already so dependent in many ways on algorithms for, for things that we're looking for. But as best we can, ensuring that human agency is being uh, preserved and we're actually augmenting human performance through the use of artificial intelligence, we're getting, we're able to make people better in, in every aspect, better at their job, better in whatever it is they're trying to do, while at the same time also protecting human dignity, um, you know, by not simply looking to AI as a way to eliminate human workers because it serves the organizations or the company's bottom line and serves shareholder value creation, but really, um, you know, having an ethical core to the implementation of, 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 of AI. And then the final uh, piece of this, and there's, I have one other uh, sort of observation on this, is explainable or interpretable artificial intelligence. So one of the real concerns around AI is that, you know, when you, you develop an artificial intelligence application, you train it with data, it produces predictions. Um, there's not always clarity on how it got to those predictions. And, um, and so that really undermines can undermine trust in those outcomes and, and does not offer a sense of transparency. So 
making AI <clears throat> to the best of our ability, creating transparency, creating trustworthiness with an AI by ensuring that there are ways for humans to explain how AI is arriving at its predictions, which would, I think, be particularly important, is particularly important when it comes to issues of life and death. This is a real concern in the healthcare space. How do you, you know, create explainable, to the best of our ability, explainable AI when you're essentially saying that artificial intelligence is better at diagnosing cancer or other conditions than um, a radiologist or an oncologist? Um, so having the level of explainability, which some people think, you know, is problematic because if for, for all the effort you put into explainability, you might actually sacrifice the accuracy or the, the capa- overall capacity of artificial intelligence. So there may be a trade-off there. I don't know for sure if there has to be a trade-off, but that is a concern that's raised. Some people are also saying, well, instead of explainability, let's talk in terms of interpretability, which means, which is a little different from explainability, which is you know the idea that at a minimum can a human being interpret the connection between cause and effect. So essentially you're training it in a certain way, you're getting a certain outcome, so they can interpret maybe how artificial intelligence made a prediction or offered a decision on something um, that is not quite the same thing as being able to offer a precise explanation of exactly how it got to that prediction, right? So so, uh, sort of two shades of of the same idea that we have to be able to, to open the black box of artificial intelligence in order to gain widespread public trust in what it does, um, and and either its interpretability where it can be interpreted, so there can be some measure of understanding of how it got from one point to another, or at least the ability to the capacity to explain it in more detail, um, which in some situations may be absolutely necessary. The one other thing I would say about this, which is maybe it has dimensions of being an ethical concern, but it, it's a maybe even a broader concern is um, I'm hopeful that as AI unfolds for us in the coming um, years that as a society, we will learn the lessons of social and mobile. So both of these platforms um, have created real benefits for our society, right? So there's a lot more communication and connection as a result of having social technologies, the democratization of publishing and doing things like we're doing today, recording of podcasts and so on. Um, there, there's real benefits to that, right? Our society has been enriched in many ways by it. And at the same, and the same is true with mobile. We have connectivity all over the world. There are people in parts of the world where they have no fixed internet, but they have a mobile device. And that's the way they get on the internet. And you know, we're at the point now where probably every man, woman, and child on earth, if not literally, figuratively, has at least one mobile device, which gives them some measure of internet connectivity. And we're not close to everyone having it yet. Not everyone has internet connectivity, but a good portion of the world's population um, has it through mobile devices. So there's real benefits in all that. At the same time, we as flawed human beings have used these platforms in ways that have also been detrimental um, to our society, right? We have you know real divisions politically in the U.S. that have been exacerbated by social media. That's our responsibility as well as the platforms. We have real issues around um, you know how mobile devices have changed our ways of being able to read and consume content. It's much harder for a lot of people to read long-form content because they're so used to looking at things. We spend way too much time looking at screens. Um, in general, it has real negative consequences for kids. Um, it's disrupted, you know, sort of normal social processes of just sitting around at the dinner table or being in a restaurant and someone's phone goes off and you know, how do you use your phone, that sort of thing. 
So there have been benefits and detriments to both of these platforms that I think we've come to recognize. The thing with AI is that, as we've discussed already, the stakes around AI could not be higher uh, because there are real-world lives and jobs at stake um, with how we use AI. And so we've got to, I think, be more intentional than we have been with either social or mobile on trying to work collaboratively to maximize the positive outcomes um, of artificial intelligence while doing everything in our power to minimize the negative consequences. And there's very little that, you know, we can put pressure on big companies, um, and I think we should do that, and, you know, governments can regulate them, which I think they should look at how to do that responsibly without um, really doing, without undermining innovation. Um, but I think what we should be doing as, an, as individuals working in any field is just taking to heart the idea that we have a responsibility to ourselves and others to try to drive the application of AI in a direction that is beneficial to our society while we heed the lessons that we have all experienced firsthand to some extent from what's happened, how we have, how social and mobile have really in some ways been a little bit corrupted um, by the way we've used them. And, and I don't think we have the luxury of simply allowing AI to unfold in whatever way it might and then figuring out how to deal with it later. I think we have to be a lot more intentional now to prevent uh, what could be, I think, very difficult consequences for a lot of people if we're not vigilant uh, and not able to to move the uh, to put to move AI in a direction that is really beneficial for our society. So those are some those are a bunch of things that are, that are on my mind as I think about where AI is and where it's going. Well, definitely a lot to think about there from that idea of those lessons learned, the the benefits and the detriments that we've seen with social and mobile, all the way back to kind of this idea of responsible AI, ethical AI, and the explainable or interpretable AI. Lots buried in there. That's the end of part one of the interview with Jeff DeCanya on artificial intelligence. And again, we're going to continue this cliffhanger in the next episode where Salisa and Jeff turn to talking about the challenges and opportunities of AI in the context of work and learning. But for now, you can get show notes for this part of the conversation by going to leadinglearning.com slash episode 177. When you check out the show notes, you're going to see various options for subscribing to the podcast. And if you're getting value out of what you hear, we would be truly grateful if you would subscribe as that helps us to get some data on the impact of what we're doing with the podcast. And we'd also be grateful if you take just a minute to give us a rating on iTunes. Just go to leadinglearning.com slash iTunes. That'll put you in the right place. Or if you use another service to get the podcast, they're going to have ratings and reviews as well. And we'd appreciate your taking advantage of those. So Lisa and I personally appreciate your rating and review, but more importantly, those ratings and reviews go into fancy algorithms that are powered by artificial intelligence and help the podcast to pop up when people are searching for content related to leading learning. And we'd be grateful if you would check out our sponsors for this quarter. Find out what Blue Sky eLearn has to offer at leadinglearning.com slash blue sky. Find out more about Authentic Learning Labs at leadinglearning.com slash authentic. And finally, consider telling others about the podcast. You can send a tweet by going to leadinglearning.com slash share. You can also like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash leading lifelong learning. And of course, you can share us with others there. However you do it, please do help share the good word about leading learning. 
Thanks again and see you next time on the Leading Learning Podcast.